0: My name is John. I'm an alcoholic and I've heard great things about this group. Charlie talks about you all a lot, uh, very affectionately uh, at some of the other meetings that I attend. so I was honored when he asked me to, to be a lead off speaker today. Um, Charlie is my sponsor. If you don't, uh, haven't already figured that part out. And uh, I uh, begged Charlie to take me on uh, when I found out that he was somebody who was more of a free thinker and would would, um, would indulge my interest and in, and in my weird ideas about what a higher power might be and uh, incorporating that with buddhism and stoicism and just things that either of us read in, in various things so uh lately i think i've been boring him with with quantum entanglement. so I'll, I'll have to torture him some more about that some other, some other time that's getting pretty heavy stuff so anyway um I have, I, I should start off by telling you, oh, good afternoon, by the way. I just looked it up. It's 3:05 in Ireland, I think. Uh, any, anyway, um, I have a special affinity for the people of Ireland dating back to about the mid-1970s. I was a teenager, about 14, 15 years old, living in the Netherlands with, with my family uh, in The Hague, or Den Haag, as they say in, in Dutch. Um, anyway, about that age, uh, as I recall, I had my first girlfriend. And my dad made this rule that I had to be home by 9 p.m. on school nights. Ridiculous, right? That's what I thought. Um, to my mind, that seemed unfair, intolerable, oppressive, and just—I uh, I just didn't know how I could deal with that. So, um, and I was particularly onerous because I was—I was a good student, and you know, otherwise wasn't—you know, wasn't causing them any problems. But I thought I should be able to hang out later at night. So, anyway, being in the midst of my rebellious years. I packed up my backpack and slipped out in the middle of the night, hopped on my 10 speed and off I went. And that led me to a, about a week long adventure um, that took me across the English Channel into England. And then from there to made my way to Liverpool by train and from Liverpool across the the uh, Irish sea to, to Belfast. And then um, that's where I kind of settled in for a little while, I, I started meeting people Easily, because all I had to do was ask where the restroom was, or ask if they could point me to the hostel. And as soon as they heard my American accent, people were fascinated and stopping me in the streets, wanting my opinion on all kinds of things I had no business having an opinion on, like the Vietnam War at the time. So, so. um, But anyway, it it was easy to strike up a conversation, easy to get to know people, and and I was uh, embraced and and uh, and taken in by. Uh, one particular Irish family that I, that I really uh, grew close to. So they kind of semi-adopted me and um, I survived on coal cannon, hopefully I'm saying that right, corned beef, um, Dublin coddle, all kinds of things I'd never heard of, uh, including this wonderful uh, beverage called Guinness. So between corned beef and Guinness and everything else, I, I, and, and this wonderful family that hosted me, I was having a great time. I wasn't planning on going much of anywhere. So, uh, Maggie, the, the, uh, matron of the family, um, over time convinced me that I should at least contact my mother and let her know I was okay and where I was. And, uh, she'd had little snippets of, of that. I was okay by me sitting in contact with my girlfriend. But, uh, by the time I did uh, finally reach out to her. That poor woman had probably aged about ten years in a matter of two weeks. So, I felt I felt bad about that. But um, so you know, we began talking, and and uh, you know, again, I very immature brain at that point. So I was I was just uh, um, you know trying to assert myself at a, at a at a premature age and so forth. And eventually, we agreed that I would come back home if I didn't get punished for running away, which. If you're a parent, you know they're going to find a way to punish you, even if it's not for running away. So, so I paid my dues and in, in all kinds of different other ways, but but nonetheless, got back home and um, my mom was was uh, terrified that I'd probably run away again, which I might have. Now now that I had done it and had such a great time, so she had the the foresight to um, to come up with a solution, and that is that there was a an acting company out of New York City. That was putting together a troupe of, of uh, a production troupe of actors and actresses and and so forth that would be touring all over europe for about six months and so um, she flew me to new york city and i tried out and miraculously I, I made it so i spent the next six months i was i was far enough in the, ahead in school and it didn't affect that but spent the next six months trying my hand and acting and uh, just had a great time we got to see uh, a, a whole lot more of europe than i'd ever seen before and and had a wonderful time, and it kept her in contact with knowing where I was and that I was safe, so, so it was kind of a nice, a nice, clever solution at the time. So anyway, that three-week or so stint that I had on uh, traveling around by bicycle, tram, train, ferry across the English Channel, uh, ferry across the Irish Sea, and, and so forth, um, it kind of brought, thinking back about it, kind of brought out probably my two most toxic character uh, faults and those are uh, pride and arrogance. Uh, and it, it brought those together and they were married happily married with, uh, with a pint of Guinness. So I think the seeds of alcoholism were probably planted uh, at that at that age. Um, so um, that I, I don't it didn't really become a problem with alcohol until later in my life, but looking back on it, that's that's the character traits were there and kind of the setup was there. So uh, in any case, um, I went on to to uh, uh, Excel in high school and did pretty well there, went to college and and did well there. I always liked academics, so that was that was not a not a labor for me. it was something I enjoyed. And then uh, eventually made my way um, back to Colorado for for medical school and um, and graduated from that. And then there's several more years of training, internship and residency and fellowship and so forth. so. Along about the time of my 15th high school reunion, I finally had an job uh, other than just being a full-time student. Uh, but anyway, uh, I ended up doing academics for a couple of years and then going into private practice where things got real busy real quick. And sometime around sometime during residency and and uh, and then going into my practice years i I began using alcohol medicinally. so I wouldn't really drink at parties or around other people, I would just drink as as a way of shutting my mind down at the end of a busy day. So that way I could study all the way up till if I wanted to go to bed at 11, if I wanted to study until 1045, I could just, you know, drink a couple of beers real quick, calm my mind down and go to sleep. So I I thought that was a pretty, pretty decent solution at at the time. And then that continued even more so into practice as you just get busier and busier and, and uh, your mind's always on. So you, um, I just use that as a way of assisting my mind to, to shut off. Um, so, and that kind of became a, a problem as I'll, as I'll go into uh, later in life as problems began to mount. Um, I was married for 17 years to my first wife. We had two wonderful daughters whom I, I'm exceptionally close to. And, uh, and my, my uh, uh, ex-wife and I get along great. Uh, we we co-parent even though our kids are in their 30s now we still have a really good relationship and and uh, continue to co-parent our our daughters um so jumping forward to around 2013 2014 I, I had a a couple of really bad years and there were several things that kind of came together to make a to make a perfect storm one is that I was going through a divorce from my second wife that was extremely stressful and um, that whole marriage was a huge mistake but uh, it was a very, very stressful and, and you know, contentious divorce. And um, secondly, I had built a practice that uh, of four physicians, myself and three others. And the the other three began kind of started getting picked off a little bit, one by the hospital, and one joined another practice, and another one wanted to go out on their own. And so they kind of started disappearing one by one. And um I had invested a lot of money in an office so my overhead started going up because there just weren't wasn't as many people to pay it so i i could handle that that was not the end of the world but it just it just it was one more um, item on my plate and then in november of 2013 i think i was visiting my daughter in colorado um for thanksgiving let me wet my whistle here and um i'm from colorado so It seemed really odd to me that I was so short of breath, just walking down the hallway at the hotel, uh, you know, pulling one of those roller bags. And by the time I get to the elevator, I'd be ready to sit down and catch my breath. I couldn't really figure out what was going on, but um, made made an appointment to see my primary care doc shortly after I got back home. And uh, my hemoglobin was uh, 6.7, I think, which is uh, to translate that, that means about half the blood in my body was... Was missing; it had gone elsewhere. So, um, turns out uh, I got scoped because that's one of the more common places people lose blood, and and I had an ulcer in my stomach that had been recently bleeding. So, made perfect sense. So I had a lot of stress; the ulcer caused me to lose blood, made me short of breath. It seemed like it was an open and shut case. So, uh, I was put on medication by my gastroenterologist, and I thought that was that was pretty much the end of that. But about three days later, he calls the office. And um, and I came to the phone and, and um, normally when a doctor calls a doctor, it's about, hey, I've got a patient I want you to see. Let me tell you a little bit about him and that sort of thing. And I was expecting to be that kind of phone call. But he started off by saying that um, the biopsy came back positive for cancer. And um, I don't know if you all know who Charlie Brown is, but it's a cartoon. And when when Char- usually when his teacher or his parent is talk is talking, all Charlie Brown hears is wah, 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 wah. And, and that's kind of all the rest of that conversation just went way over my head. I, I didn't pick up anything he said. So I had to call him back at the end of the day and apologize and ask him to, to go over it again. So that led to, um, you know, a lot of real busy uh, month or two ahead of, of doing staging workup and seeing an oncologist and figuring out what we were going to do about it. And ultimately, they came up with a plan, which was to uh, resect um, the, the malignancy um, remove it I was I was thought to be a stage two B at the time which is kind of a medium level as far as cancer goes um, so the plan was made to do a, to do a resection and remove my lymph nodes and uh, probably follow that with chemotherapy or or um, radiation therapy or both depending upon uh, what the pathology showed so um, we made plans to to, uh, to to start that in motion. And in January of that next year, I underwent a um, a gastrectomy, and they removed about two thirds of my stomach, which um, made eating and drinking kind of interesting. We had to had to kind of do that pretty slow. So that that was a big surgery to recovery from. from and, and based upon the number of lymph nodes that were positive, I was changed to a stage three C, which is that's getting into about the 50-50 survival uh, range there. So um, that kind of put me into a, a, a group where I just wasn't really sure what, what the outcome was going to be. I was sure as heck going to fight uh, to to stay alive. So uh, I did everything I was supposed to do, completed chemo and radiation over the next year, and, and um, thankfully continued to have negative scopes and negative scans. And at this point, I'm considered in um, permanent long term remission. It, it, it's, it shouldn't should not come back unless, it, unless I just have particularly bad luck. So between the, all those things going on, the, the, the malignancy um, with the understanding I had a 50/50 chance of survival, uh, my partners uh, being picked off and going various places, which put me under a little bit of financial strain. and then uh, the divorce, which was still ongoing at that time. Um, you know things were piling up pretty heavy and and I was I was turning to alcohol again to sleep I, I wasn't a drinker that would drink around other people or you know wanted to be around other people when I drank I just wanted to drink a whole lot real fast and then then knock myself out so that continued I, I remember still being in a in a lazy chair um, recovering from my surgery because I really couldn't hardly stand up without help and and I managed to sneak a. You know, a bottle of vodka next to the chair, so I could I could uh, uh, drink myself to sleep. So uh, obviously, I had a problem. There, there's no question there. When you're when you're it had two thirds of your stomach cut out and you're you're filling the other third of it with vodka. So, um, so that that's when I kind of began to realize, you know, I this this just isn't right. And and as I realized I was going to survive the cancer, I became even more motivated to look at my whole life. And at my physical self, uh, especially in my spiritual self, but I needed to go back into survival mode, not just survival mode, but I needed to fix a lot of things that were still lingering that could cause me problems down the road. So I kind of started a plan uh, to do that. And it wasn't it wasn't a particularly good plan because I, all I knew is I needed to quit, but I didn't really know how. And I'd heard about this thing called AA and uh, I thought, well, that, that sounds pretty good. I'll give them a try so um in the in the meantime i I, somewhere in there i I remarried to my to my third wife who was just wonderful so i had a great relationship behind me had you know definitely motivated to take better care of myself and things were seemed like they were turning the corner and going pretty well so i started attending meetings um but i just never really latched on i i would go and i would listen and um the typical meeting was we would introduce ourselves and then uh, the, the um, facilitator would say, well, let's, you know, let's turn to page 136 of the big book or whatever, and we'll, we'll go around and just read. So we'd spend about another 30, 40 minutes just taking turns reading. And then, you know, we close it up with a prayer. And, and, and that was pretty much what the meetings were. Uh, and that's not anybody's fault. It's just, I, I needed to go to more meetings and find ones that I was that I was getting more help with. So I was kind of in and out, in and out, you know, one toe in, one toe out. Um, My wife was very encouraging and she started going to um, Al-Anon with me. We try to, we try to, um, you know, we try to set up meetings together. So she was very supportive and I, and I really appreciated that. Um, I did get a sponsor, uh, a great guy like Charlie um, that, that I watched, sat back and watched and, and picked after a while and said this is the guy that he has what I want that's the guy I want to I want to be like and and uh, he had been 30 40 years sober uh, older fellow and um and just just a a, a real great down to earth guy so so we kind of started uh to get to know each other and then Unfortunately, he was diagnosed with with cancer. So um, his health started to tank and I kind of became part of his support team, which I was more than happy to do. He's a wonderful person and didn't really have any family around. So I would take him to his appointments and we'd spend a lot of time going over his treatment and things like that. So um, in other words, we never really established much of a of a, um, a of a sponsor type relationship. It was it was kind of mutually beneficial that but, but um, it, it certainly didn't it didn't work as far as somebody needing to, you know, to to walk me through the process or encourage me to, to do the things that I needed to do. So, um, in other words, long story short, I, I just never really got attached to AA. I, I, I would go through the motions, I'd go to some meetings, I just, but but nothing really hooked. Nothing really really worked for me, and, and I'd go through periods of abstinence of maybe two weeks, I think maybe four weeks one time, but it was clearly I was just not committed to to the long term solution there. So, um, I uh, th- this went on for a while, and, and um, in the midst of that, I retired uh, at the end of two thousand and sixteen. I kind of took an early retirement, and th- this was part of my life's plan. Was I was a I'm a, a private pilot. I fly small planes, and um, so my plan was I'll go back to Alaska, where I'm from. I'll uh, take some some of the bush pilot training courses. That's where you do the nasty stuff like landing on riverbeds and gravel roads and farms and uh, water takeoffs and water landings and fun stuff like that. So I was going to beef up my piloting skills and then work for the Alaska Native Health Association for the rest of my life. That that was my plan, just flying myself and a nurse and maybe a paramedic into these tiny little villages and drawing blood and taking blood pressures and trying to explain to them why whale blubber was not good for their cholesterol while being chased with a harpoon back onto the plane. So that's how I envisioned spending the rest of my life. But my wife in the meantime was uh, becoming progressively more ill. I, I knew she had a congenital disorder. We talked about it early on when we started dating and it was a, it's, it's a mitochondrial disorder. Basically, the mitochondria are like the battery packs for your cells. Every cell in your body just about has a mitochondria, which is what powers it. And she had a, a mitochondrial disorder, which could affect any part of her body at, at, at any point in time. Well, she had been really, really healthy. In fact, when we met, she was playing tennis five days a week, competitively, uh, working two jobs, just super healthy, super active. And, uh, for whatever reason, this disease decided to, to start um, dragging her down and And that it did, so she was getting multiple um, medical problems from it, and uh, where we lived in Alaska, there really aren't there really aren't very many specialists and, and so they're prone to sending you to fly down to Seattle if you really need to see a uh, you know a high level specialist. so after a few trips back and forth to Seattle and seeing that things were not going to just quickly turn around on, uh, we talked about it, and I made the decision that we needed to come back down to the the Lower 48 is what Americans call the main part of the, of, of the U.S. So we decided we should come back down to the Lower 48, and I was already licensed in, in Kentucky, so that was an easy fit, and I found a great job here. So, so we kind of uh, we still had our home in Alaska, but we we came back down here to get better uh, medical care for her. Um, so her her health uh, unfortunately continued to tank uh, pretty quickly. She became Uh, about 90 percent blind she had just a little sliver a moon-shaped sliver of vision in one eye and that was that was it Uh, and then dementia set in and along with that hallucinations and she was only uh, 55 when she when she passed away so these things were happening very rapidly and at a young age but in, in the midst of that of course she needed more care especially as she stopped being able to think clearly so um, I hired a um, an agency to be with her during the daytime, and then I would come home and relieve them, and I'd stay with her for the rest of the night, and I'd, I'd be her caretaker at night. It just one second. So, um,
1: and it, honestly,
0: it was an honor to do that. I I can't imagine not having done that, and um, and it, it was an honor. I, I some people ask if it, you know, if I had. Uh, regrets or um, um, issues about because I you know I really had to give up the rest of my life I would I would work and then come home so there was no more fishing no more hiking no more traveling no more flying planes no more of uh, the things that I used to love to do for recreation but I loved being there for her um, and, uh, and and I was I was proud to be able to do that for her um, by this time by the way I was I was sober I've been to a rehab program in, in Las Vegas after having failed at my Half-assed attempts at doing AA by myself. I'd been through a good rehab program and was, mm-hmm. and was uh, well on uh, track for for being sober. I think I was sober for close to three years uh, by by the time that she started needing full-time care. So um, that kind of continued on, and uh, um, I, as part of being the caretaker, I couldn't really let myself go to sleep all the way. So I would always kind of have you know one ear open. And one I kind of half open and kind of learned to just go into just a more of a of a drowsiness state rather than letting myself fall asleep so that I could hear her, because uh, I was afraid she, she was a very high risk for falling and I didn't want her to get out of bed and fall. So I was always kind of hyper vigilant to what was going on with her and. Um, so this went on for some time, and um, I, I should also mention that, that uh, unlike me, she was very religious. She was uh, Catholic and, and had a lot of uh, Catholic values, and, and so we would pray together every night. Even though I'm not uh, a believer of the, in the um, Judeo-Christian concept of God necessarily, I, I was happy to pray with her. And basically, for me, it just became a gratitude list. So my prayer would be, um, you know, dear Heavenly Father. Uh, we have so many things to thank you for. We thank you for this home. We thank you for this roof that doesn't leak. We thank you for this, you know, this nice warm uh, home that we live in, and these beds that we can sleep in, and this food, and our pets, and our children you know, i would just kind of run through everything i could think of on a gratitude list and that and that would be uh my prayer would be you know we we hope that other people can be as, as fortunate as we are so it was it was even though i wasn't religious it it was nice i enjoyed it because it was it was a gratitude list basically and made me realize that my problems uh were uh, were not as big as i sometimes thought they were so um the uh, one morning i checked on her i would sleep Uh in the in a recliner across from her. And so one morning I kind of checked on her. We had we had an agreement that if she was already asleep, I would be really quiet not to wake her up. So I kind of tiptoed in, took my shower, got dressed for work, peeked in on her, uh, made sure that she had a drink on her bedside stand and her medication on her bedside stand and and uh and then traded off with uh with the caretakers I was leaving for work. And uh two and a half hours later, about 10:30 in the morning. I got a call from the caretaker saying that she was concerned that Kim had not uh, woken up yet, so she went and checked on her, and she had passed away. And um, it was later determined by the coroner that it had probably occurred earlier in the night, sometime after uh, midnight. Or um, so. With with that, uh, you know, I, obviously, I lost somebody who was really, uh, really pivotal and, and important to me and um you know i dealt with some with some guilt issues one one is that um that i always imagined that when she would pass away that i'd be there you know holding her hand and talking to her and um, so i I missed that opportunity but uh and, and then also um i just felt guilt because she had been telling me for a long time that she felt she was dying she had she had wanted to sign up for hospice and i kept saying well you know i've been with you to every doctor's appointment Every hospital stay, I, I'm not seeing anything in your labs or on your test that says you're imminently about to die. So, you know, when the time is right, we can do that. But I would kind of reassure her and she would then, you know, say, no, nope, you're wrong. I'm going to I'm going to pass away. So I, I had some guilt about about that guilt in both those instances, I realized, makes no rational sense. I, I mean, I couldn't possibly plan to have been there when her heart stopped at two o'clock in the morning or whenever it did. or, uh, And I couldn't possibly have. Uh, said, okay, let's go hospice, let's, you know, let's get them out here and we'll sign you up on the feeling that you're going to pass away. So uh, I realize those are not rational, but nonetheless, guilt is guilt. That is what it is. So, uh, and I have dealt with that. I've been through some grieving uh, groups and so forth. And I think I've, I've got that pretty well settled. But the part that didn't settle was the sleep. And as I mentioned, I'd always kept, you know, an ear up and an eye kind of half open uh, watching and listening for any movement. And even after she passed away, I would I continued to sleep like that. And I would frequently start to drift off. And then I would startle thinking that I heard my name. And it would take me only a second or two to realize, no, no, that she's passed away. And then the same thing would happen multiple times per night, night after night after night. I just could not get sufficient sleep or, or sleep at all. And then one uh, fateful day, the day of my big mistake, I hadn't slept in about two or three days, and I was uh, in, in this sleep deprived, uh, stinking thinking state that I was in. Uh, I decided I really needed some sleep in order to be able to do a good job at work the next day, and that was utterly important. It, it didn't occur to me that if I felt I couldn't do a good job, I could just call in, but that just that didn't cross my mind. But the fact that I needed sleep was Foremost on my mind. And I in the meantime, I tried various over-the-counter things and some prescription medications that that were not helping me. So a light bulb went off and it said, I know what works. Half pint of vodka will take care of you. You'll sleep great. If you just go get just, just a half pint. Don't buy anything bigger than that, just a half pint, because it's just a one-time thing. And you know, how many of us have heard that story so many times before? That that critical mistake of thinking you're not you don't have a disease. You're, you're, you're okay. You can, you can, you can drink once in a while. So that with that screwed up thinking, I, I, I went to the liquor store and bought a half pint of vodka and sure enough, slept like a baby, woke up the next morning, felt fantastic. Uh, had a good day at work. And then, um, then uh, the, on the way home the next night, I thought, you know, that worked so well. I think, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take up drinking anymore, but I think that I should just keep a half pint on hand, you know, just in case I get into a real big bind like that. And there was a three-day weekend coming up when the liquor stores were going to be uh, closed for two of those three days. So I thought I, I should just go ahead and just have one on hand to, you know, just in case I, I get into a real bad bind like that again. And and so you probably know where this is going. I and mean, I, was, I was just circling the drain and getting ready to go right back down it again. So uh, just just as you've probably heard so many people say, half pint became a pint, became whole lot more became you know uh uh, like a a fourth of of a fifth and and uh you know excessive drinking just came back just like a freight train just rolled over me and I was just completely out of control way more than I'd ever drunk before uh in my quest to fall asleep and stay asleep so this um this went on and I and I knew I was in I was getting into some trouble um but I just as we say in step one, I, I just didn't, I couldn't control it. I had no control over it. So I, uh, um, I was trying to manage it by myself, and I started combining alcohol with sleeping pills, thinking, okay, if I find the right sleeping pill, and I then I can, you know, wean myself off the vodka pretty quick, and then you know, I'll be back to being okay again. Well, that mixture was a horrible idea, and I ended up falling uh, and hitting my head. I, I have no recollection of it, but hitting my head bad enough to sustain a really horrible concussion, uh, one night. And, uh, and, and then, um, that ended up leading to a second fall about a week later. So I had concussion on top of concussion. And by that point, I couldn't even walk. I was so, my balance was so off. I couldn't think clearly. I, I, I thought I'd had a horrible brain injury and, uh, I did end up being hospitalized on the trauma unit, um, at, uh, university of Kentucky for a couple of days because I did have a little bit of bleeding on the brain, just not much, but a little bit, but, um, that just scared the the Dickens out of me. So I was, uh, you know, I make my living by using my brain as, as most of us do. And I just could not imagine life without, without being able to think clearly. So I was, I was scared to death and I knew that I'd passed the point where I had to stop. So I I quit, uh, never touched it again. Um, and, this time, when I started, when my thinking started to clear up, I thought, you know, I, I need, I need some more help. I need somebody to keep an eye on me. Um, and so I reached out to our state medical board and told them I had a problem and that I wanted to be enrolled in a program where I'd be monitored and, you know, random tests and all that sort of thing. So they were happy to accommodate that and sent me off to a three-month rehab program, which which was really good. Um, and uh, and so I, I learned a lot about myself and a lot about the disease there and have continued to to uh, grow on that um and 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 uh, implement that in, into my life so i'm about a year and a half sober now year and five months i think so um so i you know which seems like a tiny amount compared to many of you all but uh, but it's a start. You know, you, you don't start off the race, the marathon at mile 13. You you have to start at the beginning. So it, it's a it's a race. I'm, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm terrified of relapse. It scares the heck out of me because I keep hearing the numbers and the statistics, and I I relapse once, and I, I relapse so bad that I know uh, there is no question in my mind that if I relapse again, it's going to kill me. I'm I'm going to do something really awful and you know fall and break my neck or have a horrible head injury and and that'll be the end of me so that that kind of that fear factor stays with me and that's part of what motivates me that and i'm just enjoying the sober life. i'm enjoying having my head clear and being able to think clearly i'm enjoying not being able to not having to worry about a hangover in the mornings all those awful things that go with with heavy drinking on a regular basis so um that's that's where i am at life I'm, i'm i'm happy i'm healthy i'm in a i'm in another good relationship and um I, I, I kind of, I feel like I'm getting physically, mentally and spiritually stronger as each, as each month goes by. So that's where I'm at. I appreciate uh, having the opportunity to share. Thank you.